0: Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle. Welcome you into Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. This is episode six. David Cohn, the owner of five World Series rings. James Smythe doesn't own any World Series rings, but when it comes to statistical perspective, you got to kiss the ring because James is an absolute boss when it comes to stats here and Information Me. I don't like wearing jewelry. I have no rings. And uh, David, The guy who we're talking to on this episode is an owner of a new World Series ring. His first. Who are we talking to today?
1: Well, you got to go to the bullpen for the Atlanta Braves, the World Series champions. And, uh, you know, there's several to look at. The chances are he's probably left-handed, right? I mean, there are so many good left-handers in that bullpen. But A.J. Minter, a big part of their staff, a guy who's been through some adversity up and down in the minor leagues really came into his own over the last couple of years, a big part of the night shift, as they say, and so I'm really happy, Justin, that we got a chance to talk to a World Series champion and and A.J. Mentor and get his perspective on how they did it, what it feels like to be a World Series champion, and and to have a victory parade. Pretty, Pretty remarkable.
0: A.J. was lights out for the majority of this postseason. Him, Tyler Matzik, Will Smith, those three lefties, then you have Luke Jackson into the equation, one of the best modern postseason bullpens that we have seen and the atlanta braves they continue celebrating here and and you, you should you know this this may not come around all the time but you see aj celebrating on his social media it looks like has life changed right after that final is recorded where, where does david five world series champion tips how does life change Does it change after each one? Does it get a little bit better as you go by? Because obviously four with one city here with you and the Yankees. What was life like after winning in 96? And how did it get better those few days after that final out, that series closing wins recorded?
1: Well, the first is always the best, right? Just about anything in life. The first World Series championship certainly is the best. Uh, You never forget it. It's forever. I think the further removed you get from it, the more you appreciate it especially when organizations start calling you 10-year reunion, 15, 20-year reunion. That's what these guys are going to be looking at for the for the rest of their careers and then post-careers. And then just the aftermath, the first couple of weeks after you're a World Series champion, there's so many requests, you know, and podcasts like ours looking for guys to talk to or or whether it's, uh, you know, a, a football game, you know, and being part of, a, you know, the Texas A&M for, for AJ mentor, who's an alum who went to Texas A&M to be a part of their festivities on a Saturday college game day, uh, television shows, uh, requests, you know, uh, that are, that are, that are coming out of nowhere. So yeah, you have to manage that part of it. You also realize that for a lot of these guys, you know, it, it's a short off season too, you know, spring training's a couple of months away. So you, you, you certainly try to balance it, but there's nothing like it, Justin, when, when you get these requests and you're a champion and, well, you, you get you get to go around and, and bask in that glow. It's just a tremendous feeling.
0: And you mentioned the offseason. This was the first weekend, this past weekend, without baseball on in quite a while. How did you guys spend it?
1: Looking for something to do, right, James? I mean, I, I'm watching the, I'm watching Knicks and Nets. I'm watching college football on Saturdays. I, you know, i have uh, I got baseball savant doing a little research on who did what trying to, trying to figure out, uh, you know, my pitching niche here and there, but uh, yeah, definitely there, there, there's a bit, a little bit of a
2: void.
3: Yeah. It's uh, it's hard, you know, we 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 all work in the business and it's, you go hundred miles an hour, you know, all season long. And then it just stops very suddenly. And, uh, but it is uh, nice to have a little more uh, free
1: time on your hands. And uh, it's uh, that's nice too. I will say this, you know, if you, if you like winter baseball, you can get it. You can watch the winter leagues going on right now. And, and uh, if you go to MLB.com, you can probably find some of the feeds to watch the Dominican Winter League, which is fantastic. A fantastic level of play. Uh, Albert Pujols is actually down there. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Playing in the Dominican Winter League right now. Puerto Rico has a great winter league as well. So, uh, you know, I played in the Caribbean World Series for Puerto Rico back in 1986. Uh, I loved it. You know, we ended up winning the champion championship. So I was part of the. Caguas Criollos, uh, who, who won the, the Caribbean World Series in 1986 uh, for Puerto Rico that year. And it, uh, believe me, uh, it, it was an incredible experience.
0: The atmosphere in those games looks incredible. I mean, between the crowd and just the energy that you can sense from, from the dugouts, from the teams, it looks like it's an experience. If you're a baseball fan, a big one, you may want to like take a trip down there one winter. Obviously, Get better weather in the winter months, but but taking in a game there seems like it's a bucket list item for a, for a baseball fan.
1: Absolutely. I, I highly recommend it. And if not, you can watch it. I mean, they're, they're, they are televised, so you can find a feed and you can watch some of these games. And also, uh, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in Japan, too, there's still some games going on as well. So there's baseball still around. If, if you're if you're jonesing for a baseball fix, it's out there. You can find it.
0: Before we get to our interview with AJ, James is, is going gonna to go off a little AJ Minter resume right before then. But like we try to do here at the start of every episode of Toe in the Slab, we begin with the opener. So, David, what has caught your eye and, and how do you like to open this episode of Toe in the Slab?
1: Well, for me, it's kind of the, uh, the big picture kind of a view on this uh, in an era where teams have, have been tanking. Uh, where the value of winning a championship is maybe thought about uh, not on the same level as it once was Uh, the value of a championship is front and center for the Atlanta Braves. You talk about the perfect storm. Uh, That city was hungry. There was uh, 150,000 people outside of game five waiting to explode. If you saw their parade, when the Braves won the championship, uh, the, 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 The attitude of the crowd, the the response of the crowd there, that is going to be a residual effect for that organization and those players. That is hard to put a figure on. The franchise value has gone up seemingly overnight. The value of a World Series championship is on display, once again, rightly so, in an era where that's kind of been diminished, right, devalued a little bit, at least perception-wise it has. And to me, it's right there. Here you go. Atlanta Braves, World Series championship, huge payoff. Huge payoff for the franchise, huge payoff, payoff for the players.
0: You see footage of that championship parade and some recent championship parades as well. I feel like, David, the, the, there's been a little bit of a looser vibe on those parade floats compared to to years past. I mean, you have guys being, uh, you know, they're, they're receiving beer cans. You know, fans are throwing beer cans there. Chuck A.J. was front and center there, right at the top. Did you guys have any of that when you were
1: rolling through the Canyon of Heroes? No, we did not. Uh, Not to that extent. Um, Things are a little looser nowadays. You know, it's, it's been a while since the nineties in New York coming up the Canyon of Heroes. I mean, you're talking about millions of people. So it's a little different dynamic in New York, but I'll say this. If you have not seen Dansby Swanson's catch of a beer, on top of the float and the way he snagged it and then stared down the guy who threw it to him. It's one of the, one of the better videos you're going to see and Dansby Swanson uh, just an incredible scene. I mean, it's an instant gif. I mean, if if you ever, if you ever want to throw something together and and, uh, email it or, or pin it to anything, uh, that little gif of Dansby Swanson right up there, some of the best I've seen in any sort of parade anywhere.
0: Yeah. The catch and stare. Awesome. AJ Minter, literally, in one motion, grabbing the beer and uncorking it, chugging it. Just extremely fluid. Very impressive. Also, his season was pretty impressive, right, guys? Uh, James, A.J. Minter, give us a little player profile here on this Braves left-hander.
3: Well, uh, 28-year-old lefty, just finished up his fifth big league season, all with the Braves. He was a second-round pick. Uh, and he's had an an up-and-down uh, career. Um, it's been a, a, a really great journey from a great start. He's had injuries. He's been up and down from the minors. He was even in the minors earlier this year, and he comes back and he has a, a spectacular October and stretch run too. But he really uh, is emblematic of of the great push that the Braves made through the playoffs, through all the upsets that they pulled off, and for Minter, twelve innings in. This postseason, only four runs, eighteen strikeouts. He was mowing them down left and right, and he was part of that, you know, that night shift um, in the bullpen. The quartet of Jackson, Luke Jackson, Minter, Tyler Matzik, Will Smith, uh, a two two eight ERA, really carrying that pitching staff through through the gauntlet of uh, the Brewers, Dodgers, and Astros, and uh, especially the trio. You look at just the three lefties, uh, 163 ERA combined for Minter, Matzik, and Smith. Uh, he had a great run,
0: uh, well-deserved for the championship. We touched on the night shift. We touched on pitching through that adversity, learning from those failures, and, of course, going through the big postseason run for A.J. Minter in the Atlanta Braves. Here is A.J. Minter on Tone in the Slab. AJ, thanks so much for coming on here. Welcome to Toe in the Slab. And congratulations once again, World Series champion. Probably been a whirlwind week for you since you guys closed out game six. You are all over the place. We saw you uh, at Hawks games and, and concerts with Cole Swindell. You're on stage with a country music star there. The big parade on Friday, you guys dominated that. I'm wondering if anyone out chugged AJ Minter on the parade floats there because you looked like you were uh, at the top of the leaderboard.
2: That was my goal was to, to get the party going and chug the most beer. So hopefully I, hopefully I can claim that one.
0: What have these last few days been all, all less than a week since you guys captured that world series title and you're all over the place in Atlanta yeah. and thinking Florida, what's it been like? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I'm there just uh, telling you, uh, this has probably been more stressful the last week after the world series game. Um, yeah, this is the most stressed I've ever been throughout the whole season, but it's a good stress. I mean, this is this is everything you work for. This is everything you dream about. And obviously, I'm never guaranteed to win a Winter World Series again. So I'm trying to enjoy it as best as I can and just have fun. David, can you relate?
1: That is the right attitude, AJ. Congratulations yeah. again. You were fantastic, by the way. The whole bullpen, <laughs> to me, uh, just was the story for the Braves. You guys picked it up, especially when Charlie Morton went down. Uh, when when you guys came in the game, it felt like it was over, you know. And it reminded me of some yeah. of the some of the teams I was on in the '90s, uh, you know. And, and nobody can ever take this away from you, AJ. You're right. Twenty years from now, somebody's going to invite you back uh, to, to some yep. sort of brave celebration, and you're going to forever be remembered. So yes, soak it up. I congratulate you. You deserve every moment coming your way. What a remarkable World Series you personally you had as mm-hmm.
2: well. I appreciate that. It was. It was a whirlwind uh, season, just for everyone. I mean, everyone had their ups and downs, including myself. And uh, you know, I got to sit down to AAA, and I, I, if no one would have thought, I mean, yes, obviously we believe that we had the team to make it far, but right there before the All Star break, I mean, if you would have asked me that we were going to be World Series champions, I'll be honest with you, it, it would not have been even a thought for me.
0: Let's start there, AJ, because you just talked about going down to AAA earlier this season. You're kind of bouncing up between the majors and AAA for the last couple of seasons. But throughout Mm -hmm. this postseason, when you're on the podium, you're talking to some of the TV networks. I I kept hearing you and some of these other guys that are in the bullpen with you talking about rising up from the failures, learning through your failures. Mm
2: -hmm. How did you do that? It was, for me, my whole life, I... I never really failed. And, you know, in high school, I was obviously, you know, a good athlete. I could always, you know, I threw pretty hard in high school so I could just blow it by everyone. We got to college. I had a, you know, really good career in college, got drafted and I made it through the minor leagues pretty quickly. And I got up to the major leagues and the first season, in the major leagues, I had success. And the second full season in the big leagues, 2019, um, it was – I had a horrible first month. And I got sent down to AAA, and I thought it was the end of the world. Um, I never – like I just said, I never really failed in my whole life until then. And I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, I went out of AAA, and I felt like I didn't have – the right attitude. I was, you know, just feeling sorry for myself and um, didn't really do good in AAA either. I, I came back in the big leagues and then I got sent back down again to the trade deadline because we acquired three more relievers. So I was kind of the short man out and I got sent home in September whenever the team was going to the postseason. So I had to watch uh, the 2019 postseason at home on my couch. And it, it, I didn't know how to deal with it. It was, it was hard for me. Um, but I just kind of feel like I made a commitment that off season that, you know what, like I was, I meant for something greater. I know I can, you know, pitch in the big leagues and, and help this team as, you know, as much as I, I, I believed I could. And so really that 2020 season, you know, fortunately with COVID, it was a shortened season, but if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have, because we expanded the rosters for 2020 and I've already got optioned out of A, and right before the season started. But since they expanded the rosters, that was the only reason why I made the team in 2020. And obviously had a great two months of season in 2020, made it to the CS, unfortunately lost to the Dodgers to go to the world series. But I just felt like that was the kind of a turning point for me. And it reassured me that, you know, I do belong here. And then unfortunately, this year, again, I got tested with another adversity, and but this year, it felt like I, I wasn't – mentally, I was in a good headspace. I didn't feel like I deserved to be sent down, but it, it's a business, and I, I understand that. But when I did get sent down, I knew going – I just had a good attitude about it. I needed to go down there and get to work, so I did Thankfully, I wasn't there very long. I think I had seven or eight appearances in AAA, and I didn't give up a hit. And from then on, it just just kept going. When I came back to the big leagues, I had success. I just was confident, and it carried over into the postseason, and thankfully had a good run.
1: Yeah, you know, AJ, the thing I noticed, too, you know, in in watching you pitch over the last several years, really – was your aggressiveness. It seems Mm -hmm. like maybe, you know, we talk a lot about first in baseball, first pitch strike, getting the first out, uh, who scores first in the game and postseason really kind of rings true. You made a huge jump, almost 10% jump in your first pitch strike uh, percentage, almost 65%, somewhere in that range, I I think I read. And to me, that's a mindset, right? I mean, I I know I went through that as a pitcher, but is that something Mm -hmm. you think about or was that – getting better feel of your cutter so you can throw more yeah. than your fastball for a strike on the first pitch.
2: Honestly, what it was for me, it was fastball command. It was trusting my fastball. And I finally learned that I have a good fastball. But I've always came up to the minor leagues, like I said. I always relied on my cutter, slider, and I just – I dominated people with that. And it – I just finally learned to get ahead of my fastball. And If I can establish my fastball, then that's just going to make my cutter slider that much better. And then I can just go sh- stick to my strengths. Don't worry. Yes, I have a change up, but that's more just to keep the hitters honest. And it's just a weapon if, in case I, I don't have my cutter that day. It's, maybe it's something I think I can go to. But I just learned to just stick to my strengths, stick to what I'm good at, and just perfect that and just keep it simple.
1: You know, you know, AJ. I also wanted to ask you a question. Um, you know, I know you were drafted out of high school. You, you chose to mm-hmm. uh, go to college. Uh, you had a chance to sign out of high school. You probably made the right call, right? You went to college. had a great yeah. career down there. Probably learned a lot uh, through oh. the college, college ranks, and you, you jumped up into the draft. So, is there any recommendations you'd have if you got a if we got a kid out there that's in high school that maybe might, might get drafted in the lower rounds? Uh, you got any recommendations? Go to college. Sign. Do you, you know, in retrospect, any, any, uh, any thoughts that you have on that?
2: Yeah. For me, it's, it's different for each person. You have to make the decision that best suits you and your family. I mean, everyone's in a different, you know, financial situation. Everyone comes from different backgrounds and it, it's only a decision that you can make personally. But for me, it was, My dream was to always pitch in the major leagues. So it was to get to the major leagues and have a, you know, a long career. And I knew coming out of high school, I I went to a small private school and I just kind of, I threw hard and I just dominated, but I wasn't really a pitcher. I was just a thrower. And there were still a lot of things that I had to learn. And for me going to Texas A&M, being learning in the SEC baseball, I mean, it was kind of the best of both worlds. So you, I was going to get there, have a great education, which was important to me, and but also pitch for a great university with a lot of tradition. The coaches there were unbelievable, and I learned a lot how to become a pitcher, and that just helped me get through the minor league so fast. If it wasn't, I feel like, going to college, so, like I said, it, it just depends on you just have to kind of outweigh the pros and the cons. And it, it is a hard decision, but you just never have to regret your decision. And um, it's just a matter of if you personally think that you want to be a major league baseball player or if you want to go to college and get a degree and have fun, then there's nothing wrong with that as well. It's just a matter of your mindset.
0: David, what was that like for you as a as a high schooler coming out of out of Missouri?
1: It was, it was tricky. You know, I, I, I always ask, you know, uh, pitchers like AJ these types of questions because I had the same choice and I chose, chose to sign out of high school and I always missed that college experience. And I always, you know, mm-hmm. I feel, I feel like, you know, there's some growth to be had there depending on the program yeah. you're, you're at, you know, I know Texas A&M has a great program down there. It's a fun mm-hmm. place to go to school and college station. So you know, I, I missed out on that part, you know, I went right to the minor leagues. I was two weeks after I graduated high school, I was, yeah. Rook- I was in rookie ball, you know, and trying to, trying to find my own place to live the next year when I'm 19 years old. And I had no clue on what I was doing. So, yeah. you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes in those, those teenage well, years, those first couple of years. And I've always wondered, you know, what it was like for, for guys who had that choice but chose to go to college. And, and well, you know, I think it worked think, out well for AJ. AJ yeah. was a 38th round pick. I think uh, you ended up like a, in the second round. Uh, so three mm. years later, at, you know, coming yeah. out when you were eligible out of college.
2: I think, too, looking back on it, there, it's in both situations. So when I got to college, there were pitchers that, you know, signed out or turned down second, first round money, millions of dollars, and they went to a and And they didn't – They they just didn't want to be, I guess, a major league baseball player. They were there to enjoy college, have fun, and this kind of blew their opportunity. And I saw it in both sides. When I got to the when I finally got drafted and went to the minor leagues, I saw guys out of high school that weren't there to, to work. They weren't there to they wanted to go to college and party. And it, it's just, it's you have to have the right mindset when you're making your decision. Okay, what do you really want to do? Because if you want to be a major league baseball player, you have to put things aside. You have to put your priorities straight. And the minor leagues, it's a grind. You're gonna miss out on the college experience, and but that's a sacrifice that you have to be willing to make. And I've seen both sides where they probably made the wrong decisions, and it, it is a, it is a hard decision.
0: It's interesting that you probably see that and you come to that realization only after you mm-hmm. land in that side that you chose right either if you're a a high schooler landing in the minors and pro ball and trying to navigate through that life or or vice versa in college it's it's very interesting we're gonna get to this awesome postseason run that you specifically (coughs) you guys in the bullpen had going through the postseason going through the world series and James could really put that into perspective let's go backwards though because you talked about battling through adversity and, and just to sort of uh, epitomize maybe like what you, what you guys and when we talk about you guys the guys in the bullpen the guys that make up the night shift right in in the yep. bullpen coming out of game five you had a chance to close it at home it doesn't happen mm-hmm. what was that plane ride back to Houston
2: like for game six? Um, so I feel like after we didn't close it out game five at home, it was it was pretty quiet in the locker room. It was. I wouldn't say we were defeated. Uh, we were still in a good position. We were still up three-two in the series, and but I, we wanted to win it so bad at home in Atlanta, just for the fans. So of course we were we were disappointed in ourselves. I was disappointed, but whenever we got to the plane the next day, everyone was full of life. Everyone was full of energy. We were, we were. I think we feel more confident uh when we play on the road. I don't know what is it. I mean, it definitely is more pressure when you're playing at home in front of your fans and you just kind of you feel obligated to win for them. So I feel like for us we weren't uh defeated. We didn't feel any extra pressure going back on the road. We were just excited just to to get a chance to win a World Series. So yeah, we were feeling we were feeling confident in my opinion.
0: David, did you feel less pressure playing in those high stakes games on the road, especially in your time with the Yankees when you're you're out of the the New York limelight and you guys have a chance to just be yourselves, 25 guys and some of the other coaches?
1: It can work that way. You know, I I agree with AJ. I think we we had a podcast that we talked about uh after game five how that was a missed opportunity for the Braves. I mean, it seemed like outside of the ballpark, there was like a hundred thousand people waiting to explode. So that mm-hmm. would have been incredible. I agree with AJ on that. It's disappointing not to get that, even though you're you're still up in the series, you play better on the road or you feel like you're okay, but well, you got one shot, you know, to close yeah. out at home. That that was a once that was a once in a generation type of opportunity. So I agree. You know, it's a little disappointing after that. You know, my question to AJ is is that. you know who's the leader in there is there any are you do you have a rah-rah type guy somebody that goes around and talks to everybody or is there more of a a leadership by example like freddie freeman for example is he is he kind of cut out of the chipper jones mode Mm -hmm. in terms of lead by example or uh, did did, did he say anything or did any any veterans say anything at that point to kind of rally the
2: troops we have a we have a good mixture of guys in the clubhouse and that's what we need we like you said freddie is you know he's quiet but he's a guy that like you said, he leads by example. Um, he's a, prefer- a, a professional on the field and off the field. So what he does, he just he's just kind of our uh, sets the example of how to just be in the present, be in the moment. And then you have guys like Jock Peterson, Heredia, guys that are they bring the energy in the clubhouse and in the dugout and on the plane rides throughout the day. So you need guys. On both sides of that, and that's like that's what I appreciate the most. Like from Jock when he came over and Heredia, I mean those guys. Because it can be right before the game, it's uh, you get nervous and um, flying on the plane rides, but those guys just kind of lighten the mood a little bit and uh, just kind of feeling you get you pumped up for the game. And so yeah, it's that's why I felt like we we did so good because we have both of those types of people in the clubhouse
0: I read that Jock was sort of a, a linchpin in getting this season turned around for the Braves mm-hmm. was there one seminal moment during that early August turnaround period that one game or that one moment where the switch just kind of flipped itself
2: if you would I think it was I'm pretty sure it was Sports Illustrated that came out that article with Jock and so when Jock first came over we were, we're flying home from a a road trip and we're playing cards on the plane, having a good time. And whenever we land, we get on our buses. Well, we have a a position player bus and we have a a pitcher's bus. Well, Jock, he was just, you know, just having a good time. And mostly it was all pitchers that were playing cards. And then Jock was playing cards with us. So we just carried the party over onto the bus and jock decides the ride on the pitcher's bus. So we were having a good time on the bus, you know, having a good time. And we just started talking about, uh, you know, the the World Series, because, you know, we played against each other last year with the Dodgers and the the Braves, and he just got us fired up. And I'll use the PG version, but he said, y'all are the guys that are going to win us a World Series. And he was talking to us bullpen pitchers and starting pitchers. And I feel like from then on, it got us fired up. It got us going. And we carried that confidence through the last second half of the season and into the postseason.
0: Jock's your best cheerleader then for this bullpen. For sure. That went on an absolute tear, especially against lefties. And I think that's what really stands out is that you guys, plus Luke Jackson, you know, three out of the four, big guns, all left-handers, James can you put the night shift into perspective with postseason bullpens here and just how special this run was for, for this Braves team?
3: Yeah, we've seen uh, some, some great bullpens in October in recent years. Um, and for the season, uh, the bullpen was, was good. Had a good season, three nine four ERA, uh, 11th in the majors. But to take the leap and to get even better in October when you're facing better lineups – was incredibly impressive. Uh, 311 ERA as an entire unit. And you guys were lean, leaning, they were leaning on you guys so much. Three plus innings and no more than two runs allowed in 12 out of the 16 playoff games. And the Braves were 11 and 1 in those games. And narrowing it down to the high leverage guys AJ, Matzik, Smith, Luke Jackson, that quartet, the night shift a 2-2 ADRA with 59 strikeouts in 47 and a third innings. And AJ, again, a good strikeout rate, 26% in the regular season, 37% K rate for AJ in the playoffs. Absolutely fantastic. And what struck me was a lot of these outings were either multiple innings or even if it was one inning, it was getting the last out or two of one inning then sitting down, coming back Mm -hmm. out getting up and down. AJ, what is that like when you're in a high-pressure situation knowing that you might have to bridge multiple innings, even, for instance, in the game after Charlie Morton broke his leg?
2: Yeah, I guess it started back last year in 2020 whenever I made that random start in the game five of the CS. And I have never in my career have gone more than an inning and a third until I went three innings in that, in that CS game. And from then on, I was addicted. I was you know, telling the pitching coaches, hey, stretch me out. I want to become a starter. And I was goofing with the guys in the bullpen that I'm not going to be in the bullpen much longer. I'm going to be a starter. And I, I just kind of fell in love with that role. I fell in love with going out there and throwing multiple innings. And I just felt more – I was telling you, I felt more like a pitcher instead of a thrower. When I come in – into a tight situation, I feel like I I try to do too much. I try to go out there and throw ninety-eight every single time and I try and strike the guy out instead of just making my pitches and and just being efficient. And I feel like when I when I know when I come into a situation, especially in the postseason where I was going kind of multiple innings, I was kind of that bridge guy. I knew that I had to be efficient. And I knew I had to make quality pitches not trying to do too much, and just save this bullpen as much as I could. And it turned out to be, you know, one of my best stints in baseball where I was striking more guys out. And I think it was just because I was getting ahead of the guys and just keeping them off balance and just being confident with my stuff.
3: You mentioned, uh, just to put into context that uh, start you mentioned from last year's NLCS, starting game five, as someone who was always relieving, in, in in your pro career coming in in a postseason game three shutout innings seven mm-hmm. strikeouts and uh, a fun fact uh you're the first pitcher in major league history to make your first career mlb start in the
2: postseason mm-hmm. oh it was so brian snicker called me that morning because we knew we were gonna have a bullpen game and I had no idea I was going to, you know, be the opener for that game. But he called me that morning at 1030 and said, Hey, we're, you're going to open the game and, you know, just go out there and continue what you've been doing. And hopefully you can just get us one inning. That was, that was honestly the goal for me was to go out there and just throw one inning and turn the ball over. Well, obviously your, your drilling's pumping pretty good <laughs> and uh, I had a, had a I wouldn't say a quick first inning, but I think I had two strikeouts that first inning, gave up a double to to Justin Turner, and then got out of that and then went out for the second inning and had a super quick inning. I think I threw like seven or eight pitches, one, two, three. And they just wanted me to go back out for the third and I think to face Jock Peterson actually. And I think I struck him out and I think they just all right, well, he's made this far. See how far you can make it. And luckily I got through the third inning. So it was I was I was pretty gassed after that third inning. I don't I mean, I definitely if they wanted me to go back back out for the fourth, I was gonna tell them, of course. But I think they probably made the right decision because I, I was I was pretty exhausted after that third inning.
3: You did strike out Jock to start that third inning, by the way. And then you struck oh, yeah. out Chris Taylor, Mookie Betts
2: too. So yeah, okay. I think I got everyone to like full count so I was definitely a little bit more wild I wasn't as efficient but luckily somehow I got through that third
0: <laughs> has has Jock ever explained what it's like stepping into the batter's box against you lefty versus lefty because you are dominant filthy against left-handers
2: actually I haven't asked him about that that um yeah I need to I need to pick his brain a little bit on that one but uh, I never got a chance to ask him
1: you know, you know, AJ, I have a question I ask all, all the current players, but if I get a chance, you know, you guys have a reputation. You mentioned, you know, Snitker, the veteran manager, what a great story he is, all those years in the minor leagues. Uh, it seems like you guys have kind of a good feel of old school and new school, and I was wondering in mm-hmm. that dynamic, you know, um, uh, you, you guys started shifting more in the middle of the season. You started to adapt some, yeah. some of the more new school, modern metrics how how has that worked for pitching do you guys use the high speed cameras have you had your pitches evaluated has that had an impact on you to develop the the shape of your cutter slider Mm -hmm. that that has been so good for you
2: so I never I've never been an analytical guy I never got into it I didn't like it Uh, for me it was just all about feel and the hitters would they're going to tell you you know what's working that day but for me, I finally – and like you said, shifts. Um, I feel like as pitchers, we hate this shift because every time you give up a hit, it's usually a weak, a weak hit that beats the shift, and you just get, you get fr- uh, frustrated. And I remember we, we kept a tally out in the bullpen of when the shift worked and when it didn't work. And sure enough, we found out that the shift does work. And that, as you said – in the second half, we started shifting a lot. And it definitely, I can, looking back at it, there's definitely a lot of uh, scenarios where the shift definitely helped me out for sure. But as a pitcher, you don't, you don't worry about the shift. Don't, you don't look at it. You do still have to, you have to stick to your strengths. You don't go to the hitter strengths. You know, if, if, you, if you know what I mean, you don't worry about where they like to hit the ball you just have to make your pitches and just be confident with the defense behind you. But I've never been an analytical guy. For me, it was all about, I was telling you earlier, how I learned to start trusting my fastball. And I I learned that I had good ride on my fastball and I learned to throw at the top of the zone. Now with the way baseball's going, you know, hitters, they like to like, they like to do damage. And you can, you can take advantage of that by pitching up in the zone. And that's where I started to have success, I feel like. And that was, I guess, partly due of the way analytical is going in baseball. So, have you seen sure. your numbers?
1: Have you seen your numbers, your, your 4 seam spin? I mean, it's, it's in the 91 percentile. You have upper echelon yeah. spin on your 4 seam fastball, the shape of that cutter, too, and the, the mm-hmm. spin on that, and the horizontal vertical break, pretty, pretty remarkable. I'm wondering, have you seen your numbers? Do you shy away from that? Do you have – Anybody on the staff that's sort of an interpreter between the analytics department and, yeah. and your pitching department that helps bridge that gap?
2: Yeah, our uh, our bullpen coach, Drew French, he's a very, very sharp guy. Rick Kranitz, you know, he's more old school. So it's right. you have to have the mixture between the two. And what Drew French brings to the bullpen is the analytical side. And I learned so much from him just of, like you said, the spin rate, my ride, my horizontal break. Okay, this is what makes my pitches good, and it allows me to just remember of the shape of each pitch. What it corresponds to, like you said, the spin rate and the horizontal break, it allows me to kind of envision that. So, like, okay, this is this is the type of movement I need to have on that type of pitch. So, it definitely, it definitely helps for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, your numbers kind of jump off the chart, you know, and the horizontal movement on your cutter in particular. And I know we, we classify a cutter. I was the same way, cutter, mm-hmm. slider. You can manipulate yeah. it a little bit, change it a little bit. But, you know, you're well above average, well over three inches of, of horizontal movement above the average cutter. So to me, mm-hmm. that, that's your bread and butter. That cutter slash yeah. slider is devastating. But you're forcing fastball. You're right. To me, it's a story. Uh, the spin you get on that the riding lifting action you get on that when you came back from the minor leagues this year throwing it 64 percent of the time getting ahead of the hitters boy there's the key to success right there AJ but it seems like you found it
2: yeah it's it took me a while to finally learn that but I feel like I learned it at the the right time and um, that's what life is it's all about going out there and trying new things and failing and um, but as long as you can truly learn from your failures, then you, then you honestly, you never fail. I mean, it's either you win or you just learn to get better. And it definitely, it definitely took me longer than I would like to to hope. But yeah, I think I finally found something that I can take with me for my rest of my career. And hopefully I can just, you know, keep that same mentality and keep it going.
1: Do you, just one last question with regards to like, you know, I'm a pitching nerd, man. I love everything about mm-hmm. pitching. I mean, I've, I've been obsessed my whole life with spinning a baseball. Do you use on your grip on your cutter? Is it more of a hybrid forcing grip or do you use more of a, a slider type grip on your cutter or do you mix it up?
2: So repeat the question.
1: I and mean, how on the grip on your cutter, do you use yeah. more of an off-centered forcing grip or do you use more mm-hmm. of a slider, slider, horseshoe type right.
2: grip to, to, um. to, to get that break? It, it's kind of changed throughout the years, but it used to be more of a, an offset forcing grip, like a true, a true cutter grip. And that's when it was, you know, anywhere from 91 to 94. But I learned a cutter, a true cutter isn't really a strikeout pitch. It isn't a swing and miss pitch. It's more, you know, if you're behind the count and you need the hitter, you know, just to offset their bat a little bit and get a ground ball hopefully. So I needed more of a strikeout weapon pitch especially as a reliever. I mean that's that's where we make our money is by striking people out and so I I kind of turned it more into a sliderish grip you would say. I just kind of put my fingers closer together, put more pressure on that middle finger and just kind of rip on the side of it a little bit more. So It's still – it's not a true slider grip, I guess you would say. It's more in in between. But, yeah, there there is times where in in a a 1-2-0-2 account where, okay, I want to make this a little bit bigger. So I will get on the side of the ball a little bit more, and it will get more of a a downward movement rather than horizontal movement.
3: AJ, (laughs) how did you retool yourself? You've talked about coming off of Tommy John – uh, back at Texas A&M, that you made yourself more into a four-seam cutter-type pitcher that was different than what you had before. What was that like?
2: Um, at A&M, so my freshman and sophomore year, I was a reliever, and all I had was basically a, 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 my four-seam fastball and and my, my cutter at the time. And then my junior year, they let me become a starter. And at that point, I, I, I learned a curveball, which I didn't throw very often. And then I started to mess around. With a changed up then, too. But I was still mostly, you know, four-seam cutter that junior year. Unfortunately, I blew out Had uh, Tommy John after my fourth start. So my, my junior year was over. Hope, still luckily got drafted, went and did my rehab with the Braves. And at that point, I felt like It was a time for me to work on just my command. I had to basically learn how to throw all over again. And it allowed me to really clean up my mechanics, I felt like. And I just – I shot in the minor leagues. And I still relied on – so I went back to the bullpen in my – you know, my in the minor leagues. So I just – I don't know. It just – it allowed me to really clean up my craft and a time for me to really zone in and become the picture who I am today. And so it's kind of a blessing in disguise for me.
0: We mentioned the lefty on lefty matchup and, and the yeah. numbers that just jump out when we talk about your work against lefties. Also Will Smith, also uh, Tyler Matzik in there. So you have three dynamic left-handed relievers and let's just take the world series with, with that Astros mm-hmm. lineup. How, how does Kranitz, how does French, how do they come together and sort of position each of you to match up ideally with mm-hmm. the specific
2: hitter? How does that dynamic work? So for us, like you said, we're three lefties in the bullpen, but we don't, we're not truly like lefty specialists. We, I, I like facing right-handed hitters more than I like facing left-handed hitters. Cause I felt like my cutter kind of plays better into righties than it does lefties, but, and I like throwing my change up. I'm, I'm starting to learn to throw the change up more left on left, but I feel like I have another weapon that I can use against righties. So, but we're not your traditional left-handed relievers where we just come in and get lefties out. I felt like, you know, Matzik, you know, this forcing fastball is unbelievable, but he has this power slider, power slurve that is lefties or righties. They just they, – they can't hit it. I mean, his splits are truly unbelievable between left and right, and his strikeout numbers are just insane. And Will Smith, too. He's – you know, he has his uh, slider and a curveball. And for me, I have a cutter and a changeup. So we, we can come at you at all – at different angles we have different strengths we're not this your your typical left-handed specialist so i don't know how i'm sure the the front office and the coaching staffs they had trouble for i guess our types of matchups but they obviously did a great job and it took us a while to kind of get to this point cuz at the beginning of the season i was kind of more the seventh eighth inning guy and wills closing and Massick kind of was the bridge guy who was coming in throwing multiple innings um early in the game. And then, obviously, Matzik just had an unbelievable season, and I struggled a little bit, and I had to go back down to AAA, and then the roles kind of flipped where I found success kind of being the bridge guy, coming in, throwing multiple innings, and letting Matzik just come in and throw fuel. So it was, it just, it was just, it took us a while to finally learn our roles and what we're good at, And I felt like we just, it all bridged together at the right time. And we made it to the postseason and had a crazy run.
0: You can really tell also how close you three are between Mm -hmm. Will and Tyler. And, you know, for those who who don't know Tyler's story, again, found himself out of affiliated ball. He was pitching an indie ball, went through case of the yips, found himself back in the affiliated ranks and then was able to get to the majors with the Braves here. When did you first hear about Tyler's journey back to the
2: Braves? Whenever I got sent down to triple a in 2019, that's when I first came across Matzik. Um He came in to, we heard that we signed some left-handed pitcher from independent ball and he got to us in 2019 when I was in triple a Unfortunately, I didn't get to play with him very long just because I was, I was kind of going up and down. And he came to us kind of, I think, midway through the season. and But things really uh, turned around for him was that 2020 spring training uh, right before COVID hit because he put on a show for everyone and everyone knew who his name was then because we were heard he was getting up to 98, 99 with his fastball just striking everyone out and he ended up breaking. Um, so we had spring training 2.0 and he ended up making the team out of the camp and everyone knew who Massick was at that point. I mean, there was, you, you could not not have him on the major league team because of what he was doing against hitters in spring training. And it obviously showed in 2020 season, and then carrying it over into this season, I mean, his story is truly unbelievable. I mean, if there's not a movie made about Tyler Matzik, it'll be pretty disappointing because if people go and read his story, what he's had to overcome, um, it should just be a a life lesson to everyone, just never to give up on your dream and just to always keep going.
0: What's it like watching – one, You know, each of you guys pitch like when when maybe Tyler is coming out of game earlier in the mm-hmm. season, you, you may have followed him or when both of you are out of the game and you're watching Will do his thing in the ninth. You guys are so close. It's very it's, evident there. And, and they're probably your closest teammates. What it's what's it like watching each of them when they're on the mound?
2: We're, like you said, we are definitely close, but we like to we like to talk a little smack, too. So it's definitely a friendly comp- uh, competition between us. Um but yeah, what separates us, I believe, is is the chemistry in the locker room, the chemistry we like to have off the field. Um, that that's what separates us from other teams. And we do truly pull for each other. And let's face it, this is a business. I want to go out there and succeed. You know, I want to do better than the guy before me, and I want to do better than the guy after me coming in. But there are no egos on this team. It's you can't be selfish, you have to be good teammates. And to be a good teammate, you have, to, you have to come to the field and be the same person every single day. Whether you had a bad outing the night before or a good outing, you have to be the same person because what you bring to the locker room, it can be contagious. So if you're going to come in a locker room and have a bad attitude and sulk and uh, not be a good teammate, then, you know, it's going to show. It's going to bring it onto the field. And I think we do a good job of just being the same people every single day and truly root for each other, truly help each other. Whenever we see something, um, we bring it up to each other. And it's just it's just great to have.
0: David, you mentioned earlier how there was like this old school – Feel in terms of the X's and O's, of what you saw on the field with the Braves this year. Do you you feel there's a little bit of old school chemistry, a little bit of that element as well when you hear stuff like this from AJ?
1: Oh, yes. The camaraderie. I mean, the bullpen guys are are a a different breed. I mean, uh, the the major league relievers, just the job description is so difficult. You could have one bad outing, it could ruin you for three or four months, your numbers, you know, trying to get your Mm -hmm. ERA back down or whatnot. So, Yeah, there's a different mentality for the bullpen guys. And to me, they are the heart and soul of the team. So it was interesting to me that AJ shared that story that Jock Peterson said that,
2: Mm -hmm. you know what?
1: We need you guys. You guys are going to be the reason why we win a World Series when we get there. And and it's so true. It's, you know, I've been a part of five World Series championship teams. I'm the luck of the draw in the right place at the right time. But certainly, uh, as I look back with the benefit of hindsight, it was Graham Lloyd getting Fred McGriff out in the 1996 World Series. It was Mike Stanton doing something similar. It was Mariano Rivera doing what he did at the end of games, almost being automatic. So it really is true. And, that you know, there's a different, there's a different camaraderie among relievers. And I know A.J. kind of hit on that. I, I appreciate you kind of sharing that, that with us, A.J., because it brought back a lot of memories for me, and I know how special. Just the relievers themselves can be out there in the bully because that, that's, a, that's a different way to make a living.
2: It is. I mean, relievers. It, it's it's a hard job because it, you you're either the hero or you blow the game and everyone hates you, and it, it's hard to to come to terms with that. And that's why you have to have a special group of guys in that bullpen because let's we're we're with each other every single day. We we spend more time with each other than most guys do with their wives and their families and the kids, and you have to get along with each other. And you have to have a good chemistry out there. You have to have a good vibe. And you just have to be – you have to be best friends. And it's so easy. Alex does a good job of realizing that and just bringing in good people because you can be a great player, but if you're not a good person in the locker room, then it's hard to to root for you. You know what I mean? It's hard to be good teammates. And uh, that's because it showed. I mean, we weren't – the best team this year we we didn't have the best players especially when people got injured we lost our best players it felt like and it what separated us it was just it was just good people in the locker room and we just we end up making the perfect team together and that's what baseball is it's not always the best team that wins it's the team that plays the best that day
0: i think the more you played Obviously, hearing you speak about it, you can get that sense that it's just a, a great collection of really good people at the right time over the course of a long 162. Uh, so, again, congratulations. Thanks for joining us here on Toe on the Slab. We're, we're only one week into this celebration. What's next for you, man?
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, going to Ole Miss game, and They played Texas a and Uh so I'll be there this weekend rooting for the Aggies and hopefully they can get a win. So definitely enjoying it and trying to get as much sleep in as I can. Well,
1: AJ, you're a world champion, and nobody can ever, ever take that away from you. You earned it. You deserve it. And, you know, me personally and for James and Justin, we uh, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your your story, your personal story. Uh, We've been fans Mm -hmm. of your work, man. You did a great job, and you earned it all the way.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Man,
0: AJ was awesome. And you could tell he is uh, going to continue to celebrate this and every brave should because, you know, that they, they you could feel the togetherness, right? The, the chemistry that we kind of talked about at the tail end there. And then it intertwines with what the city of Atlanta has kind of gone through in, in recent sports history. So for those two things to meet, I feel is like really special. David, what, what stood out to you when we talked to AJ?
1: You know, what stood out to me was just the, the tremendous sense of camaraderie that you get when you're part of a championship team, and in particular the bullpen themselves. It's kind of a – they have a, a sect within a sect, right? Being a Major League Baseball player is certainly unique enough, but within the Major League Baseball community is the bully. And those guys in the bullpen are a different breed. It's a different mentality, the ups and downs that they have to contend with uh, the uncertainty of the work, when they're going to pitch, when the phone rings, that's why we call them firemen. The phone rings, you got to get ready right away. You go out there and you have one bad pitch or one bad half of an inning and your ERA is blown up for six months or four months or whatnot. We've seen that happen in the past. So it creates, you know, uh, an anxiety for relievers and just a hear. AJ mentor kind of get into that dynamic in, in this interview to me was 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 pretty remarkable as a, he's forthright he's an interesting guy and he's, he was very uh very giving and, and very thoughtful in this interview
0: I also think it's important to notice how difficult it is to measure certain players and specifically with Jock Peterson because I thought that insight on Jock and how he he just mistakenly went onto the pitchers bus and didn't really think much of it kind of shrugged it off and 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 just embraced his presence on that particular bus in that moment and how vice versa the the pitching staff you know kept him there they kind of embraced him and and they really took to heart what he was able to say so we talk about how players are utilized and how they're matched up and stuff like that based on what front offices are looking at in baseball ops department i think that's a great example of how difficult it is to measure certain players and and what the intangibles are in which they bring and jock peterson's a terrific example
1: yeah he really was i mean you you get the sense that You know, A.J. Mentor really, to me, kind of crystallized the picture between the old and the new school in terms of the human element, the Jock Peterson story, the fact that he says, you know what, that he didn't, he's not really an analytics guy. There's a lot of old school mentality in that clubhouse. Snicker, the manager, certainly as old school as they come, 40 years in, you know, a lifer in baseball, minor league level. And then all of a sudden, at the middle of the year, they started shifting more. They started getting a little more open-minded to some of the new school uh, theories on on defense. And it really served them well. And he told a story about how they'd sit in the bullpen and keep track on how many balls the shift gobbled up and how many hits it gave up. And uh, pitchers always remember the ones that you give up. Like, wait, grab all of the shortstop. How come he's not right there where he's been 100 years? And that's the one you remember, not the – six others that, that were right up the middle that were outs that wouldn't have been outs in previous years. So I think AJ men kind of uh, you know, they gave us the inside scoop on that, on the mentality of pitchers and kind of coming around that they've got a new school guy. That's a bullpen uh, uh, kind of pitching coach. And then an old school guy, Rick, Rick Krennic, who's kind of their, their, their main pitching coach and the dynamic between the two. I find fascinating uh, to me. It's the most interesting thing going on in the game is veteran pitchers, Getting more used to using some of the new metrics and shaping their pitches, which pitches to throw, everything from soup to nuts and trying to find new ways to kind of help their performance
0: yeah that that dynamic and I think you you could probably see as we move forward I, I know teams like to hire two hitting coaches, and then you have the pitching coach, the bullpen coach. I think we're on the verge in the next couple of years of just seeing two pitching coaches separate from the bullpen coach as, as these coaching staffs expand. So it's a it's a, obviously a good combo for the Braves. They were doing it right here in 2021. So uh, AJ right in the middle of that, and that was a, a terrific spot from the Braves left-hander. All right, as we kind of wind things down here on Toe in the Slab, again, this is our sixth episode, trying to figure out how we want to do things here. And I think a great feature in the new school, old school conversation that we always continue to have is also to look back because that's how we go forward. Right? So James is just going to dig down into his treasure trove of information this week in pitching history. It's going to be a steady segment here, James. What do we have? And this is, this is where you have to really work for your supper because it's the beginning, middle portion of November. The, the season technically just ended. So what do we have this week in pitching history?
3: Um, I'm glad we're uh, bringing in this segment. And, you know, contrary to what people might think of, about me with, you know, analytics and the new age stats, at heart, I'm a history guy. So I, I'm going to like diving into this each week. So this week, uh, it's going to be on... November 10th, 1988, so that is going to be on this date on Wednesday, when, whenever uh, you folks might be listening. Oral was the, uh wins the NL Cy Young Award unanimously. He finished the regular season by pitching an MLB record, 59 consecutive scoreless innings, one of the greatest records in baseball history, in sports history. He threw four scoreless innings in Montreal on August 30th. Then he pitched five straight shutouts to come within nine innings of Don Drysdale's record of 58. So he's going into the last start of the season and he's nine short of the record. And they're playing the Padres in San Diego. He pitches nine shutout innings to tie the record. Of course, it, it's a pretty great uh, coincidence that the Dodgers were held scoreless too. So it was zero zero going into the tenth, which allowed Hershiser to pitch one more inning. 10 shutout innings for hersheiser there and he got the record at 59 and hersheiser was really the driving force sorry to bring this up coney uh (laughs) he was the driving force between the dodgers cinderella run to the world series that year in the playoffs he had a 105 era and he won the nlcs mvp against coney's mets and he was the world series mvp against the a's and the dodgers pull off Two big upsets against, you know, uh, high hundred win type teams, and they have one of the more unexpected titles uh, in in World Series history. And uh, so Hershiser was the unanimous choice, and it was a little bit of tough luck for Coney because in a lot of years, the season that David had in '88 for the Mets is a Cy Young caliber type of season, uh, twenty and three with a two 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 ERA. Uh, Coney finished third in the voting that year behind Hershiser and Danny Jackson of the Reds. Hershiser, 23 and eight, 2.26 ERA, and at 59 inning scoreless streak. And so that's one segment for this week in pitching history. But I got to bring up this one too. So we're going to do a, a bonus one. Okay. November okay. 13th, 1941. So that's going to be uh, November 13th. That's this Saturday. Um, Mel Stottlemyre is born in Hazleton, Missouri. Uh, Coney, um, uh, uh, one of uh, the most important people in in your career, I'm sure. And he pitched 11 big league seasons, all with the Yankees from 1964 to 74. He won 164 games, mostly on mediocre to bad Yankees teams. Uh, A five-time all-star, but he's probably best known as a great all-time pitching coach. Uh, he had great runs uh, with the Mets and the Yankees from 1984 to 93 with the Mets winning the 86 world series. And then with the Yankees from 96 to 2005. So he won five world series
1: championships
3: and Coney, uh, wh- what do you have to say about Mel?
1: You know, quite simply, you know, AJ mentor talked about, you know, clubhouse personalities that loosen everybody up and that, it, you know, workplace environment matters, right? It's hard to put, it's hard to put a number on that. You can't come up with the same sabermetric formula that to where you know chemistry or workplace environment impacts wins and losses. But Mel Stodemeyer was without a doubt the most positive person I've ever been around in my career. Every day the same. I never saw him in a bad mood. He was always ready to work. He always knew when to leave you alone as a pitcher and when to get you on the side and give you a pep talk and work you through whatever you were, whatever problems you were having. So I've never met a harder worker, a guy that was ready every day to to go to the bullpen and work, throw batting practice, whatever was needed. And and just uh, somebody that I look back on in my career and realize, you know, that even keeled level influence that he gave all those years was was really unique. Nobody liked Mel Stoudemire. They kind of broke the bold with him.
0: I think that for all the history that New York has with baseball and here at the major league level with with the Yankees and Mets and then going back with the Giants and the Dodgers throughout time. Like if you were going to do a complete history of New York baseball, you cannot do it without mentioning Mel Stoudemire's name, both as as a player, obviously as a pitching coach as well. He just, you know, terrific in that regard. And David, he made a cameo with you in, in one of your awesome commercials, too. So he had a great supporting role there.
1: Yes, he did. He, you know uh, Mel Mel's been around the block now. You know, and also if you think about Mel and the baseball family, you know Mel Junior pitching the big leagues, current big league pitching coach uh, Todd, teammate of mine with the Blue Jays, uh, World Series champion as well. So quite a family, uh, quite a baseball family, the Stottlemyer family. You got two sons that both made it to the big leagues. Pretty impressive.
0: It's a great weekend pitching history oral hersheiser beating out david for the sign word and uh, that that dominant scoreless streak david do you remember like what was being said by other pitchers yourself maybe as well when that streak was going on
1: yes you know i actually uh i would love to get oral hersheiser on this podcast i'm currently working on that uh i have some interesting theories uh You know, to me, Oral Hersheiser and Greg Maddox, to a certain extent, back in the 80s, were trailblazers in terms of style. Stylistically, Hersheiser was the first one to master that two-seam fastball that started at lefties and broke over the inside corner. Uh, That was a pitch that was frowned on for years by pitching coaches. If you're a right-handed pitcher throwing a fastball to a left-handed hitter, you had to throw cross-seam because you had to make sure it stayed inside. You didn't want it drifting out over the middle of the plate. And that was kind of the conventional wisdom by pitching coaches through the forties, fifties and sixties. Hershiser broke the mold. He's a trailblazer. People had never had never seen that pitch before. Uh, it was unhittable. That's how you throw six straight shutouts at the end of the end of the season. Uh, it had so much late movement on it. It looked like a ball the whole time. And at the last minute it darted over the inside corner uh, to a left-handed batter or away to a righty, uh, so, yes, I think when you look at today today's pitch design in, in the new school metrics, uh, the shape of pitches, we go back to the 80s. Oral Hershiser was the godfather of shaping pitches, uh, along with Greg Maddox. And uh, I would love to get into that with him on this podcast at, at some point in the future. So I can't promise that I can get him on here, but I'm going to work on Oral Hershiser, and I'm going to give you a little history lesson on pitch design. And one of the first masters was Oral Hershiser.
0: The Bulldog. We can uh... – try for all the dogs bulldog hersheiser maddox mad dog we'll yes. see what we can do here uh all right three up three down uh each of us gives three storylines around baseball we believe that deserves a little light shed on it here this week uh, i'll go first as uh as the braves just win, won the world series we have aj Minter on so in the spirit of the atlanta braves something caught my eye and that was alex Anthopoulos, the braves gm who's rightly given a lot of credit for making over that outfield on the fly, going for it when it looked like his team was kind of underwater near the trade deadline. If you're a brave fan, you see your team win the world series here you're celebrating. There's obviously going to be a lot of roster turnover with some guys uh, being acquired, likely on one year contracts, Freddie Freeman status a little up in the air though. You know, your team wants him back. Anthopolis comes out and says, Yes, we will be increasing our payroll for 2022. He does that at the beginning of the offseason. He does that with a lot of certain uncertainty with the CBA situation. There are a lot of teams that can kind of reap the benefits of winning a World Series. All of that ancillary profit that comes with making it to the postseason, winning merchandise, all that stuff. They may not put it back into the team. seems like the Braves are committing to doing that. So I have to give my props to Alex Anthopoulos. And the atlanta braves
1: completely agree that's the way it's supposed to work it's a great point justin uh you're supposed to try to win and when you do win your franchise value benefits from that so the from soup to nuts you know however you want to slice it and dice it the atlanta braves uh, are incredibly more valuable as a franchise each individual player that participated in that championship their individual brands are certainly uh, are, are going to benefit from all of it. And the fan base was so hungry for that. I mean, it's back to go back to the 90s since the Braves were in a World Series, back to 95 since they won a championship. So you talk about a fan base that was ready for it. The perfect storm happened in Atlanta. And that's the right answer, Justin. They should be looking to grow on that, to double down, and see if they can uh, come up with multiple championships over the next few years.
0: James, what do you have?
3: Uh,
1: well, the gold glove
3: announcements were on Sunday night. So I think it's uh, worth uh, honoring uh, the two pitchers who won the awards. We got to remember there's nine guys in the field and the pitcher is a defender as well. So uh, props to Dallas Keuchel of the White Sox winning his fifth gold glove and Max Fried taking home his second, his second in a row. Uh, the Braves left-hander was the World Series hero clo- uh, in the closeout game in game six. He's also a fantastic uh, defender and limiting the running game. It's uh, it's great to see. I One of my favorite pitchers growing up was Mike Messina, and he was such a great defender too. And it's great to see uh, pitchers that can handle themselves in the field too. Although I will say, maybe the wrong Braves pitcher got the gold glove because we saw A.J. Minter doing the one-handed snag on some of those beer can tosses at the
0: parade. So maybe it could have been AJ. And the quick transfer too, that's what gets me. Like catch quick, like all in one fluid motion is impeccable. So I think you have something there, James. Very nice. Very nice.
1: He did go to Texas A&M. So I'm sure he got some practice down there at College Station. That's for sure.
0: Coney, what do you have to take us home?
1: Okay, I got one last point, and I know the baseball fans might be a little bit anxious because December 1st, the collective bargaining agreement runs out. So is there a potential for a lockout? Is there going to be a work stoppage? What can baseball fans look forward to? Well, there is one piece uh, on the player's side. It's called the Curt Flood Act, and it was passed in 1998. Uh, and it is with respect to the antitrust exemption that the Major League Baseball owners enjoy. They are the only major sports uh, league that enjoys an antitrust exemption, anti-competitive behavior, bid rigging, collusive behavior. Uh, The Major League Baseball Players Association can sue because of the Curt Flood Act that was passed in 1998. They can sue the Major League Baseball owners under the antitrust laws, which is a nice trump card to have in your back pocket If the proverbial you-know-what hits the fan and the lockout happens and we have, uh, you know, an extended work stoppage, uh, there is hope. If you're a baseball fan, uh, I was part of the collective bargaining group that helped lobby Congress and get the Curt Flood Act passed. And I think it's a reason why we haven't had a a work stoppage since the 94 strike, uh, or at least a major one that's gone on and on for an extended period of time. So... Uh, just, just so you know, there is the Curt Flood Act out there. It's it's a trump card for the players, and I think it's it's a it's impactful, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. But it's something to think about uh, moving forward. And I'm hopeful that the Major League play uh, Major League Baseball Players Association and the Owners Group can get together and come up with some sort of an agreement fairly soon, because December first is the deadline.
0: You know, I'm hopeful that we don't have to spend too much time on this subject this off season. But I think it's terrific that. David has a platform here to kind of take the baseball fans through all this because there's, I, I think you're right. A lot of fans are probably nervous. They're probably fearful, but information like this is good and it gives them other things to think about other options as well. So there are options out there, but again, hopefully we don't have to deep dive on some of these labor laws and stuff like that and stuff that makes me feel foolish that I didn't go to law school. So, uh, David, thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the transparency. And uh, thank you for putting together, helping put together that Kurt Flood Act. That's uh, very insightful there.
1: Yeah, he's a remarkable man. I mean, if you don't know Kurt Flood's story, Google him, look him up. He, he put everything on the line uh, to, to break up the monopoly that Major League owners enjoyed back then, the reserve clause. If you've got a kid who's a Major League baseball player, maybe you'd understand this, but uh, you know, at some point in your career, the right to be a free agent, it goes back to Kurt Flood and the sacrifices he made. So uh, it's worth a read. If you don't know much about Kurt Flood, do a little digging. And the Kurt Flood Act is a nice little, as I said, a nice little piece for the Major League Baseball players to have in their back pocket and be able to utilize if if uh, there is an extended work stoppage here.
0: And there's a lot coming up here, guys. There's free agency about to start or has started, really. Cy Young's season is right upon us, and there's a lot to talk about with these uh this cba expiring on december the 1st so you want to stick it to toe in the slab right here stick with us i got new episodes out every tuesday great review subscribe let us know that you're listening here and it'll help us keep doing what we love to do which of course is talk about pitching and the game of baseball david james thanks a lot we'll talk to you guys next week and to our great producer dan work as well of course a production of John Boy Media thank you everybody for listening we'll talk to you again very soon you're on Toe in the Slab pitching with David Cohn.